0: Amen. Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to those of you who are new here this morning. Drop us off here. My name is Alex, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and if you are a guest with us, either here in person or online, we're delighted that you're joining us for the very first time. We've been expecting you to show up here some Sunday morning, so thanks so much for being a part of things here at Chatham Community Church. What we are all about here is really simple, because people to God, to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things, whether you're here in person or online. This is week two of a series called Integrated Faith and Life Together, and what we're looking at is the New Testament book of James, and James is relentless. That a life of faith has very concrete and practical outworkings. It is to be integrated into our lives in ways that are expressed, uh, that are good for us, good for the world, and honoring to God. Now, today, James is going to talk about good religion, and some of you doubt that category exists. Good religion, right? What does it mean that religious practice is good? What does it look like for it to be good? Now, religion is not not generally a very positive thing, right? If, if a neighbor or coworker describes someone as very religious, not often a compliment, right? They're weird or they're judgmental or self-righteous, right? Even us religious people, I get paid to be religious, okay? And I'm like, uh, I don't know if I want to be called too religious, right? Today, James is going to talk about what good religion looks like. Now, of course, there's a reason why people are kind of anti-religion in our culture more broadly. There's a reason for it, right? It's been a destructive force at times, right? Now, James is not unfamiliar with the destructive force of religion. Who conspired to kill Jesus? The religious people, right? James is fully aware that religion can turn bad. Oh, so bad. Oh, so quickly. And yet, he's not going to give up on religion. He wants to redeem religion. And so if you're here today and you're not, like, I don't want to be too religious, I'm kind of hanging out in the back and don't want to be like, kind of, kind of grouped in with these religious people, totally get it. We're so glad you're here, whether you're in person or online. My hope and my prayer today is that you might get a picture of what good religion actually looks like. And if you're here today and you are religious, you're super religious, here's what I want us to realize. For those of us who are very religious, you've got to realize we're playing with fire. Religion has been the source of some of the worst atrocities in human history. And we've got to be aware of that. And, as we're going to talk about today, religion has also been the remarkable seabed of some of the most beautiful, redemptive, salvific, glorious things in human history, quietly changing the world in some really small and beautiful, subtle ways. And that's what good religion looks like. So we want to get on board with what is good religion. How does it actually work out in our lives and in the world around us? James talks about this several times throughout his letter. We're going to start today. We're going to look at two different passages. We're going to start in James 1 verse 27. So if you got a Bible, you can turn with me there. If not, it'll be on the screen here in just a minute. James 1, 27. Just a short sentence here as James tries to bring together a picture of what good religion looks like. He says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Anyone remember Bugs Bunny? He's a great guy. Bugs Bunny, so there's a recurring trope in Bugs Bunny where Bugs would be burrowing, right? The the cartoon opens, he's burrowing right underground. You can see the thing behind him, right? And Bugs pops out and he looks confused and he pulls out a map. And what he says almost every time is, I knew I should have taken a left turn at Albuquerque. Right? Albuquerque, apparently a very confusing place. Albuquerque, apparently not really well mapped out, not really laid out. I knew I should have taken a left turn at Albuquerque. He's lost, right? Confused. What I want to talk about today to start with is how the church took a wrong turn at Albuquerque and how it messed everything up. In the passage we're looking at, James brings together two things that are often sort of torn apart. One, to look after widows and orphans. Very practical, specific, kind of earthy stuff. And then to keep yourself from being polluted by the world these two things very service oriented and then very spiritually oriented are joined together in what good religion looks like now let me tell you a story about how religion took a long turn at Albuquerque about 100, 150 years ago. About 100, 150 years ago, there was a fresh wave of scholarship that seriously doubted that any of the miracles in the Bible occurred, right? Because miracles don't happen, right? They were, science was going to save us all, technology and science was going to save us all, right? And that, hasn't that happened in the last 150 years? It solved all our problems? So what, so what they did, so what they did in scholarship was they just went through and they whited out all the miracles, right? Like, like, like the resurrection, for example. We know dead people don't rise from the dead, so that can't have happened. And so what happened over the course of that, of that era, about, about 150 years ago it started and kind of continued, was that sort of there were two branches, particularly in the white American church. In the white American church, there was the more liberal branch that went through and sort of whited out all the things about God and miracles. And basically all that was left was serve people, Right? not a bad thing. We did a whole series of love your neighbor, right? That, won't you be a neighbor? That was all about loving your neighbor. So it was all about practical earthy, and then the spiritual stuff was sort of optional, if, if you're into that, but it wasn't a real thing. Now, in reaction to that, a sharp reaction to that was the fundamentalist correction, right? And they took the, they were like Bible very, 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 very literally, woodenly, literally, and, the, and they demanded that the Bible wasn't just about being nice to people. it's about saving souls in this world, into the next. And this world was going to burn up anyway, so we didn't want to do anything good for the world. It was all about saving souls. It was very spiritual, almost to the exclusion of anything kind of earthy and practically. And this split more or less defined the white American church for much of the 20th century. And then, late in the 20th century, people started actually reading their Bibles. And realized, these things are not at odds in the Scriptures. They're not opposed to each other. Jesus, and the whole New Testament, talks In these very concrete ways, love neighbors, widows, orphans, make a difference in this world, and live in a a holy way before a holy God to tend to our own souls and to invite others to be saved with us as we follow Jesus together. To read the Bible correctly is to see both of those things. What God has joined together, let no man or woman tear apart and what but what's happened even today continues to happen today especially in our politicized and polarized environment is these same splits continue to plague the american church particularly the white american church the african-american church actually did a much better job of keeping these things together the white church actually divorced these things they were never meant to be separated we have people all the time come here and say what kind of church is this right are you like a liberal church that like just wants to care for the poor are you like a conservative church that wants to save souls and we say yes We're a biblical church. We follow Jesus. Those things are not at odds with each other. And James here brings these two things together. Care for widows and orphans, vulnerable, poor, and keep yourself from being polluted in the world. Now, I want to start with that phrase because it sounds a little bit strong. It sounds a little bit like an angry fundamentalist, right? Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Now, this is, so we're going to start here because this is a little bit foreign to us. And I think we just spent a number of weeks talking about loving our neighbor, which we're going to come back to here in a little bit. But what does it mean for us to be polluted by the world or to, to avoid being polluted by the world? And why is that so important? Here's why I think, here's why James says this. Here's why it's so important for us. To be polluted by the world dilutes our devotion to Jesus in a life-giving way. To be polluted by the world dilutes our devotion to Jesus in a life-giving way. See, there's two different ways the New Testament talks about the world. The first one, and maybe the most important one, is that God so loved the world, right? Jesus says that to Rabbi late at night. God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? So there's a, the, the world is an object of God's love. It's all throughout the New Testament, right? And at the same time, there's points that, the ways that Jesus talks about it and the way the rest of the Testament talks about it, the world is set against us. It is malforming us, misshaping us. There are patterns in this world that we, if we adopt them, they do damage to our souls and keep us from following Jesus and his life-giving way. One author I read recently talked about it this way. What, here's, here's what the world does in this negative sense. What the world does in this negative sense is take all your worst inclinations, what the Bible calls sin, lust, greed, ambition, pettiness, selfishness, takes all those things and it packages it and amplifies it and normalizes it and says, this is just how it is. Just how life is, right? It takes all your worst ambitions, all your worst threads, all the sin, all the sin things that work in you, bundles them and packages them and says, this is normal and this is okay. Okay, that could be the culture at your workplace, the culture in your school. It could be the uh, the things, the ways that people in your neighborhood gossip about each other, talk about each other. It could be the hyper-competitive industry that you are in. Or it could be the way that YouTube and movies and TV and songs on the radio, talk radio, all these things that say, hey, this is normal, this is okay. So greed is not a sin to be repented of. Greed is good. Grasping for power... It's not wrong, it's just what you have to do to make sure that you and your people are safe. Lust, not something to be handed over to the Lord and surrendered to the Lord. Everyone, just go explore, without any thought about how it affects your soul or maybe the people around you. Striving for platform and attention, that's not soul-sucking and soul-destroying. Everyone's doing that. Just strive for more platform, more attention, more promotions. My friends, here's the deal. Zoom out over history, And you'll see that in every epoch, every era of history, there were things that were normed in that epoch and then the era that the Scripture says were wrong and everyone now agrees they were wrong, right? Every epoch, every era, every generation, things that were normed by the world that the Scriptures actually spoke against, but the Christians were so polluted by the world, it diluted their followership of Jesus and their ability to stand strong when they could have stood strong. Slavery is an obvious one. Listen, my friends, operating assumption a couple hundred years ago, everybody knew certain races were superior, certain races were inferior. That was just obvious to everybody. Normal. Christians were sitting on the scriptures that taught differently. Jesus' followers knew better, should have known better. It's right there. Genesis 1, made in God's image, all the way through. A call, a radical call, to live differently, think differently. But Christians, most of them, so polluted by this world, it diluted their ability to stand strong, to make a stand. To do what following Jesus would have demanded of them, which was to be different from the world. Christians, polluted by this world, throughout the centuries, have missed opportunities to stand against the norms of this world, that have been wrong. It happens in every generation. It's happening right here, right now. Listen, my friends, a hundred years from now, people will look back on 2022 and say, they thought that was okay. They thought that was normal. That's so wrong. And it's going to be right there in the scriptures. And we're sleepwalking through it because we've been so normed by this world's norms someone once said that you are the sum total of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. You're the sum total of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. I mean, look, some of you looking at your wife, not your, your, your spouse going, you? Yeah, that, that happens. I don't think that's quite right, though. I, I think that you are, though, the most heavily influenced by the top five environments you spend time in, the people you spend time with, and the media you consume. I think you're the, you're, you are the most influenced by the environments you spend time in, the people you spend time with and the media you consume. So I want to invite you to do a little inventory. What are the environments that you are in, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, your Yahtzee club, your online gaming community, wh- your church friends? What are the environments that you spend the most amount of time in? What are the norms there? What's the culture there like? What's just natural? What's just how things are, how things roll? What are the norms that are in those places? Who are the people you spend time with? Who are the people you spend the most amount of time with? How are they affecting you, shaping you? A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were talking, and I said something, and she said to me, you sound just like Jaime. And I'm like, oh, I know, can't help it. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with that dude. Good thing he's a good influence. Now, of course, we can't. We're not going to be around people who are Christian all the time. That's not the point. The point is not to sort of enclose yourself into a Christian bubble. The point is, are you awake to the fact that there are norms that are attempting to normalize things in you that are not in accordance with the way of Jesus. That would, in James' terms, pollute you, dilute you from knowing Jesus and walking in the way of Jesus. And are there some filters you need to put in place? Are there some things you need to sort of step back from? Are there some things you need to be able to name and say, that thing is getting me in trouble? I did some research this past week and uh, a survey found that in last year, the average American watched or participated in, consumed 7.5 hours of media per day. 7.5, 7.5, that's songs on the radio, that's talk radio, that's TV, that's, that's, that's uh, books you read, that's magazines you read. 7.5 hours per day. We are more saturated by media than any generation ever before. Listen, my friends, that media is going to disciple you, in Jesus' terms. It's going to shape you in some way, shape, or form. If you're doing 7.5 hours of media per day, if you're an average person, that's going to shape you in some way, shape, or form. Just as wants to be awake to the fact that we're imbibing. What are we watching, what are we listening to, what are we seeing? How, those things are being normed for you. And remember, there's things that are being normed to you right here, right now, that a hundred years from now you'll look back and say, that was weird, that was wrong. Your, your grandkids will be like, I can't believe they thought that. I can't believe they believed that. The scriptures are gonna equip you to walk in the way of Jesus. And his norms are different than the world's norms. And you're going to have to make a choice at some point. Are you going to absorb the world's norms or are you going to receive the way of Jesus? My, my, my question for you this morning is, is there something you need to fast from this week? Is there something you need to fast from this week? Is there something you need to step back from? Not forever, maybe just for one week. Some uh, Stuff you watch on the radio uh, stuff, you, stuff you watch, things you listen to Books you read Is there something you need to step back from Again, maybe not forever, maybe just for one week So you don't get desensitized to the things that are being normed In your heart, your mind, your spirit That you become more awake, more aware Right? As you're going to engage Maybe you re-engage these things one week later But you're just more awake Like, oh, that's discordant With the way of Jesus My friends Good religion includes, it's not limited to, it's not just this, but it includes keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world because being polluted by the world dilutes our ability to walk in the way of Jesus, to participate in his life-giving way. Uh, of course, that's just one side of the coin, right? Just, that's just one side of the coin, but it's an important side of the coin. The other side that James highlights there is to the care for orphans and widows, right? These are, these are the most vulnerable people of James's time. And later in James chapter 2, James sort of spells out more robustly the, the understanding of what does it mean to have faith that is an action that's at work and the way that faith and deeds come together. So here's James 2, starting in verse 14, and we'll read a good chunk of this. He's, James writes this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Could such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is also dead. Well, as Christianity began to spread in the ancient world, of course, it was met with some opposition. And in the face of that opposition, here's what Jesus' followers did from the very beginning. Even when there was persecution and they're being stoned to death and thrown to lions, they did three things, three very simple things that Christians did every season, every epic, all the time. They did three things. One, worship Jesus. Two, tell others about Jesus. Three, serve sacrificially. That was the whole ballgame for them. Worship Jesus. Tell others. Love sacrificially. Didn't matter what it cost them didn't matter if it led to the lion's den or to being tarred and feathered and burnt at the stake. It didn't matter. They were going to be faithful to Jesus, worship him, serve sacrificially, and tell others evangelism. In fact, at one point, the Emperor Julian, who hated Christians, tried to snuff out the whole thing. The Emperor Julian writes this in a letter. He complains about the Christians. He hates them so much. Here's his complaint in his letter to one of his friends that we have from a couple thousand years ago. He writes this. These impious Galileans, the Christians, feed not only their own poor, but ours as well, stupid Christians. How annoying. Feeding our own poor, as well as their own. Who does that? See, in study after study of how Christianity went from a small Jewish splinter group to the most dominant force in the Western world, the character of the Christians is what emerges. Because the Greek gods and goddesses and paganism, they didn't develop moral character in their people. So here's what happens. A plague runs through the ancient Roman Empire. Several plagues run through, actually. And some of those earliest plagues, here's what would happen. When the plague came to a house or came to a village, the people who were healthy in that village would leave their family members and flee to stay healthy and well. And as they're fleeing the villages, you know what they're passing? Christians walking in to care for the sick and the dying. And many Christians died doing this. Like, no joke. They weren't playing around. But through basic nursing, like, no one starved to death. People were kept hydrated many people recovered and emerged and if you were on death's doorstep and some strangers came and saved you from dying from the plague what are you going to do with jesus at that point you're going to think about him seriously my friends if you're from european descent what if the only reason you're sitting here today is because your great 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 grandparents were nursed to health saved from the plague because they are following Jesus. James wants to instill in these people the kind of religion that moves in when everyone else is moving out. James wants to instill in these early Jesus followers the kind of faith that moves towards the mess when everyone else is running away from the mess true religion, he says, good religion does just this. And he has no idea when he's writing this that this is what's gonna propel Christianity from a marginal religious group to the most dominant force in the Roman world. He's got no idea of the impact this is gonna have in history. He's saying, this is just what it looks like to follow Jesus. This isn't a strategy for overcoming the paganisms and pagan gods. This isn't a religious, this is just what it means to follow Jesus. If we are gonna follow the Jesus way, worship the father that Jesus pointed to, if we're gonna walk in the way of Jesus and follow in the step of the spirit, it's gonna look like, serving, loving, beautiful, sometimes reckless obedience in the face of opposition. So James pulls two stories from the Old Testament. Right? We already talked about caring for widows, orphans, the most marginal, the poorest, most vulnerable in society. And then he pulls, pulls two stories from the Old Testament. And remember last week we talked about how James is super, is the most Jewish of the letters, actually. He's writing mostly to other Jews who are scattered around the Roman Empire who, who have converted to Christianity. And all these folks know these stories, right? So this father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham, but at first he only had one son, And at one point, after many, 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 many years of waiting for the son, God says, I want you to sacrifice that son on an altar. Dark, disturbing story. But But Abraham moves toward that direction. God stops him in the celebration of Abraham's reckless obedience in worship. That's a beautiful thing. It's good. Faith propels him to worship. Rahab... Covers for some spies who are coming in to, uh, to sort of evaluate the promised land before the people of Israel march in. She helps those people of Israel march into the promised land by sort of hiding them and keeping them safe. Rahab, reckless obedience, even at the risk of her own life. That's good. My friends, faith is not just in your head, in your heart. Faith is not just a personal thing between you and God. Faith plays out in concrete action, or it is not live at all. A couple months ago, I got a message from a guy named David. David's down on the Pittsburgh campus. Great guy. And uh, he told me about a, a person in need in his neighborhood. He said, I've got, i got a, there's a house just outside my neighborhood. And it's kind of overrun with trash and animals and all that kind of stuff. And, and he said, on the neighborhood listserv, there began to be a mob mentality around this house. Imagine that. The neighborhood listserv, not particularly charitable. And they were sort of saying, all the neighbor listserv people were piling on and saying, hey, we should call the, call the animal control and call the cops. This place is a wreck, it's an eyesore. And David has this righteous anger. He jumps onto the neighborhood listserv and says, maybe this neighbor needs our love, not our condemnation. And he's like, well, if I'm going to talk a big talk, I better actually live this out. So here's what David does walks up to the front door, knocks on it, talks to this woman. What he sees is it, heartbreaking. Single mom. 25-year-old, autistic daughter. They're hoarders. She's got a job, but no idea how to manage all the stuff, all life. So David connects with some other people in our church who live in that neighborhood, and then some other neighbors join in, and they go over and start to clean up the place. This was three months ago, and they're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. They call the church in. We provide some extra help, some money, and they go in, and they're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And the mom has approved us sharing some of these pictures. Here's some pictures of what the place looked like as they moved in. There's the inside of the house. It's the kitchen and the living room. Uh, the outside is just covered. Like The, the front porch is completely piled high with just trash, and then the, the driveway is completely littered with boxes and those sort of things. And so they moved in, and they started cleaning up that porch and cleaning out so they could actually get to the front door. And they built totally new steps because the steps were totally rotted, and they cleared out a path. And then they cleared out the whole front yard so that it wasn't totally dilapidated and overrunning with trash. And, uh, and they've been there for months, and there's still much more work to do. They're hiring a professional company that works with hoarders to try to help this, this family break these cycles and I emailed him this past week to get an update because there have been people going and chipping away for months and months and chipping away at the situation. I was like, hey, what's the latest? I'm so glad with what guys doing. Tell me more. And he said, this past week he was there working on the outside and the UPS guy pulled up. And the UPS guy said, I've been doing this route for months, for years, actually. He's like, it's been, it's been years since I've been able to pull up into this house because it was always so littered with trash and garbage. And now I can see what y'all are doing. He said, I'm so inspired by what you're doing. I'm going to go back to my church, get my friends together. We got a house just like this around the corner. We're going to clean up their house too. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Faith, Action. Coming together, and sometimes when faith and action come together, become integrated, fully integrated. It starts a virtuous cycle. Not always, but sometimes creates a virtuous cycle that sparks other people, maybe even other believers, to take steps in when everyone else is running away or just throwing stones. And so, my friends, I want to invite you this week into a integrated life, a life where faith meets action together. Today's wildly important take home. So here's a few things for us to think about. Good religion. Faith may complete through action, especially caring for the most vulnerable, weak and poor, but not just that, right? There's Abraham, radical worship. There's Rahab, radical obedience. And keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. Now, listen, if you're not a Christian, not a Jesus person, like, or not really particularly religious person, you probably like the first part, like, yay, serving poor people, that's great. You probably don't like the second part as much. Like the whole like not being polluted by the world. It sounds a little rough. Here's why. Here, let me take a pass at this. Here's why. If you're not a particularly religious person, here's why Christians are willing to submit to these kinds of commands because they're weird. They are weird. Here's why we want to do this. These commands in the Scripture are nested in a larger story, and that larger story is that God put on flesh, same as Jesus. And Jesus came and made all kinds of radical, radical statements about himself. He said. I, like, I am the son of God. I'm the son of living God. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Jesus comes and makes all these crazy radical claims about who he is and what he's there to do. And you know what you could do and should do? is Just blow him off. But here's why you should not blow him off. He goes to the cross and dies. On the third day, God raises him from the dead. God has not done that for anybody else ever in human history. God validates every crazy thing Jesus ever said by raising him from the dead. God vindicates and validates everything Jesus said is gold, true, right, good. He's not just another crazy religious teacher. He's the only one God ever raised from the dead. So if God's going to raise one person in human history from the dead, we're going to follow that guy. If God raised one person, one religious teacher from the dead in all of human history, We're going to trust and believe that God is saying yes and amen to all the crazy things Jesus taught. And so we are, as Jesus followers, willing to push away from some things that the world has normed if they're going to dilute our devotion to Jesus and the way of Jesus. Because following in the norms of this world, sometimes, not always, dilutes our ability to walk in the resurrected Jesus way. So if you're not a Jesus person, that's why we actually follow these things. Not because we enjoy recreationally hurting ourselves. We're not because we want to be weird. We only want to be weird if it's life-giving weird. So we follow Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. In his life-giving way. And we care for widows and orphans in their distress. We connect our faith to concrete action. Here's a question for you. What are some things that are normed in this world that you're absorbing through the the media, the people you're around, the environments you're in, the people you spend time with, the media you consume? What are the things that have been normed that you know are kind of like starting to be normed in you that are not according to the Jesus way? And do you need to fast from those for this week? Do you need to take a step back? Again, just maybe one week to step back from those so that you might re-norm, recalibrate a little bit, not be sort of consumed by those things. Are there some things that you need to step away from? Again, just one week. Because that exposure is going to shape you. It's going to shape you in some way, shape, or form. One week break. Not forever. Just for one week. And then secondly, I want to invite you in a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do this week? For some of you, it's like, there's nothing more to do. You're super engaged in your faith and it's not like more and more and more stuff. We're not, I'm not piling on more stuff to do. But for some of us, this is a great open-handed prayer. Holy Spirit, I'm here, I'm available. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm just open. So I want to invite you just to pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? I'm open, I'm available. No conditions, nothing held back. I'm just open to sort of walking. I want to connect my faith with the real world and whatever, that, whatever way that might look like. It might look like serving the poorest of the poor. It might look like a radical step of worship. It might look like a radical step of obedience. What would it look like for you to take that one step, that next step of sort of stepping in to connect your faith with action? Because good religion is marked by these two things, right? Caring for the widows, the orphans, directs immediate action and keeping ourselves from being polluted. By this world because being polluted by this world dilutes our ability to walk in the life-giving way of Jesus. And all of these commands are nested in this much larger story of what God has done for us in Jesus. And that's what we celebrate as we move to our time of communion. A couple thousand years ago, in a small room, Jesus unleashed a revolution that would change the world. To celebrate the Passover, the end of the meal... Jesus does what he's always doing. Takes ordinary things, makes them extraordinary. Takes ordinary bread. He breaks it. He says, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he takes the cup. He says, this cup is my blood, shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, all y'all's sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Disciples had no clue what was really going on, but the night unfolds like a nightmare. He's betrayed, run through a mock trial, crucified. Looks like the whole story ends right there as it does throughout history. Stories end right there. Charismatic leader gets killed. Movement over. On the third day, to everyone's surprise, that according to no one's plan but his own and God's, God raised him from the dead. So that your sin and my sin, your death and my death, might not be the last word over any of us. Grace, forgiveness, redemption, renewal. Life has the last word on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. And so we celebrate and we remember the life he laid down for us as we learn to walk in that Jesus' way. We're going to move now to our time of communion. The more students are going to come up. We'll sing a song lightly in the background. There are stations, two up front and two in the back. Uh, the, 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 uh, the bread on the, uh, the napkin is gluten-free. The cup is gluten-full, gluten-laden. Gluten something has it there. As you go to the stations, we invite you to move whenever you're ready. We're gonna invite you to come, get the elements, and then bring them back to your seats, and uh, we'll eat and drink together. Also, this morning, as we often do during commun- on Communion Sundays, the prayer team is available for you. There's a prayer room available right through there. There's Carol in the prayer room vest. Uh, the prayer team is back there, and they would love, love, love to pray for you. As people are moving to go get communion, what if you go get prayer? My friends, some of you need it. Don't resist it. Just go get prayer. There are wonderful, beautiful people that will pray words of grace and peace and truth over you. If you need prayer for anything, anything, anything today, garden variety trials, challenges, medical stuff, job stuff, marriage stuff, family stuff, any stuff at all, that team would love, love, love to pray for you and just enter into that with you on behalf of the Lord. Let me pray for us in our time of communion and then invite you to move to the stations whenever you're ready. Again, we will eat and drink together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your marvelous miraculous grace thank you for the beautiful story of mercy and light and life thank you for these elements my prayer is that we would be awake to receive what you want to speak to us in these elements lord some of us are coming today with shame and guilt with these elements speak a better word than the shame and guilt some of us are coming this morning with doubts and fears or ambivalence spiritually or whatever lord with these elements awaken us spiritually holy spirit you are welcome here to use ordinary things and make them extraordinary in our own hearts and our own lives and i pray that that might flow out of us into the world out there in a way that is gracious and generous Would you come lord jesus and meet us in these elements around this table we ask in your name amen amen